disbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for our sake, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, as always, we read your word and then we look to you to bless it. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So yeah, in the, uh, over the last couple weeks through the end of Romans chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, and today we're finishing up chapter 4, uh, Paul has primarily been unpacking for us the life of Abraham, um, who is uh, called the father of our faith. Um, Abraham, uh, of course, is the person that the Jewish people, uh, the nation of Israel, come from, but uh, he himself was just the Jews didn't exist before him, so obviously he wasn't really a Jew then. He just, God called him. He was a pagan, and God called him to leave the place that he knew and to go to a land that God would show him, and he began this journey of faith. And the primary thing that Paul has been doing throughout chapter 4 and that we're going to see again today is that he sets up Abraham's life uh, as a model or as an example for our life of faith as well. And he gives this summary uh, of Abraham's life this morning. Um, to make us think not just about Abraham's life, but to make us think about our life as well. I need you to hear that. It's really simple. But as we talk about Abraham's life again this morning, as we have over the last couple weeks, I want you not just to be thinking about Abraham's life, but to be thinking about your life as well. That brothers and sisters, the same God that called Abraham is the same God that calls us. And, and, and I'm telling you... <laughs> Being a Christian, being a disciple, being a part of the church. The church is to be a place where everybody gets to play. There are no, no bench warmers in God's kingdom, but you must walk by faith. You must trust him. You must get up and leave what is comfortable and leave what is familiar, and you must go to wherever God is calling you and to maybe where God is calling us as a people that he's placed together in this time and place and space and history. Um, you know, uh, reality shows have pretty much taken over TV, right? Uh, there's not a whole lot that isn't a reality show. However, I don't think the reality shows are all that much reality. Pretty sure a lot of them are staged. Um, the clue for me was when I knew some per people somewhat personally, didn't know them well, that were on like Amish in the City or Breaking Amish. You remember those? <laughs> Uh, um, <coughs> funny, weird, but funny. Um, but, you know, sometimes these, these reality shows and, you know, they have to set up some sort of drama, uh, some sort of tension, you know, so, so that it's engaging. And one of the things that's, that's weird is that we, we tend to want to, or I think the reason we watch them is that it's like we can kind of live vicariously through someone else's adventure. 
while sitting at home on the safety of our couch. And it makes us feel like we're doing something. You know what I mean? Do you remember, and again, this is an old reality show. We, I, um, but do you remember Extreme Home Makeover? Remember that? Who's the dude with the spiky hair? Ty Pennington, I think. Is that his name? Anyway. But remember, they would do some, redo somebody's home or they would build a home for somebody. And then they would have this big bus that they traveled around in at the end for this grand reveal. And, uh, and the family would be standing on the side of the bus and it's, it's, they're so close to it that it's blocking their view of their new home. And then do you remember what he would have them say? What he would have them yell at the end? Everybody all together, move that bus. Do you remember this? And, and then they would move it all and everybody would say, and it's like, you know, at times I would be, have sat there and watched the whole episode and man, I would just join right in at the end with old, move that bus as if I was part of it. When in reality, I'd done nothing. I'd sat there, I'd watched it, and probably eaten a bag of potato chips during that time. Brothers and sisters, God has not called him, called us, he's not called us to trust him in such a way as though we just live vicariously through somebody else and just mouth the words, move that bus. He calls us to actually go out and to build something for his kingdom. Not in our own power, not in our own strength, and not alone. We do it with the body of Christ, and we do it in his strength, but yet he's called us, he's called us to do it. And I saw that because as we Again, Paul is going to kind of, he's going to repeat himself a little bit, as any good preacher does. <laughs> um, he's going to repeat himself and some things that he's already said earlier in the chapter, but he's, it's a progression that isn't just a repeat. He's, he's moving us forward, and again, he wants us to not only think about Abraham's life, but his life as well. And as we think about Abraham's life, the primary thing that Paul sets forward as an example for us from Abraham's life is, of course, his life of faith. The way that he trusted God. And this is, the, this is the theme. This is the main idea of pretty much the entire book of Romans. That the righteous shall live by faith. We shall live by faith. That the way we start the Christian life is the way that we live the Christian life. It's the way that we finish the Christian life. It is by believing again and again and again in the God who raises the dead. And who calls us to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the headship of Christ for the sake of his name. And so a couple things here as we look at Abraham's life, and I hope also thinking about your own life as well, uh, that I want to look at and that are very much straightforward uh, examples for us. The first thing I want to point out is that Abraham's faith shaped his view of the future. It shaped his view of the future. Look at verse 18. He says, in hope he believed against hope. Now that's a weird phrase. In hope he believed against hope. To paraphrase that, what he's saying is, against all hope, he believed in hope. Against all hope, he still had hope. When nothing, absolutely nothing, would have said that there is any hope Abraham chose to have hope anyway. Why did he have hope, though? He had hope because of his faith. 
In hope, he believed against hope that he should be called the father of many nations. Again, he's barren. He's, Paul's going to explain that some more here again in a little bit, just as he already has. And he says, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Is that his faith clung to the promise of God that God told him that he was going to have an offspring. And not just one offspring, but offspring that would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And though everything else was against that, or would, would have said the opposite of that. He chose to believe the word of God because God wants to show by his promises that his word is more powerful than whatever this world may be telling us or whatever the enemy may be shouting to us. And so I just want to ask you this morning, right now here this morning, today, in this season of your life, do you have hope? Do you have hope? Do you have hope? Hope. I meet so many hopeless Christians. They say that they trust in God, but they do not have hope. There are many things, we don't have time to do this this morning, but there are many things that are markers um, of an authentic faith. Okay? So one of the things that the Reformers were fond of saying is that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And many times they'll say that in regards to faith and works, that we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone because out of the root of faith are going to grow works. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So one of the marks of authentic faith is that it's going to bear or bring fruit, the fruit of good works that glorify, that glorify God. We're not justified by them, we're justified by the faith that is at the root. But we bear fruit. Well, another qualifying mark of authentic biblical faith is that we have hope. We have hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance. Let me try to say it this way. Hope is the shadow of joyful expectation that our faith casts towards the future. Hope is the shadow of joyful expectation that our faith casts towards the future. I don't know if you can see this right now, but up here on stage, depending where you're sitting, there's like a little shadow right here from my pulpit. Now, the shadow would not exist apart from the substance of this podium, you understand? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But if we have authentic faith, it casts a joyful shadow of expectation towards our futures. How do you view the future? And if I can, and listen, I don't have time to, you know, I, eschatology is important. There are, many view, with, there, there are many intramural debates within the category of eschatology, meaning the study of end times things and how Christ is going to come back and what that's going to look like and what exactly is going to happen leading, leading up to that. And... Um, and there's good reason for the debate because the Bible tells us just enough that we can have hope and yet not enough that we know absolutely every single detail as some people think they kind of know every single detail. But here's what I want to say about your eschatology. Does your eschatology bring you hope? And here's the thing. I think all of them can, whatever your view of eschatology is. But here's, what, here, here's the outworking of what I see a lot of times in people's eschatology. Is we start talking about how bad everything is, and then we just circle the wagons, and we're like, oh, dear Jesus, please come back. Now, listen, on some level, yes, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We await that day. We want that. 
But the people of God are not to just circle the wagons and live with cynicism and fear in the midst of a dark world. Who is the light? We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the light that goes forward from our lives is Jesus in us, but it is the hope and the assurance that we have in him. And I ask you this morning, as we just sit here and we, you know, because it's very, you know, over the last couple weeks, we've gotten a little bit technical. We've talked about redemption, justification, propitiation, all these different words, and we can kind of just dissect this doctrine, but I don't just want us to be able to dissect a doctrine, brothers and sisters. I want us to live a life. I want us to live a life that goes and that trusts and that believes and that hopes against all hope. This is what the world is going to see. Before they listen to our doctrine and the technicalities of it, and it matters, it absolutely matters, the first thing they're going to see, and it's not so much going to be taught as much as it's going to be caught, is whether or not we have hope. Do you have hope? How do you view the future? Do you you understand that because of the promises of God, this statement is true? Think about this. It's very simple. It's not that profound. But don't lose sight of this. For the Christian, the best is always yet to come. Let that sink in for a second. If you've trusted in Christ, the best is always always yet to come and it's hard sometimes and it's difficult and there's things that in our life right in this moment I'm not saying that we just pretend like they don't hurt because they do in fact as Paul goes on later on in Romans chapter 8 we'll get there Lord willing sometime over the summer he says this he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning did you hear that? the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But then listen how this hope, again, if hope is always forward-facing, it is a shadow of joyful expectation that our faith casts into the future. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Very logical. <laughs> but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Is hope a fruit or a marker the faith in your life? And again, maybe this morning you're just sitting in a season that is hopeless. We've all been there. Amen? Maybe it's a bad day. Maybe it's a bad week. Maybe it's been a bad month. Maybe it's been a rough couple of months. And your hope is wavering. But the Bible says that if we have a faith that is sure, that has substance to it, God is going to refine that faith and he's going to purify it. 
And in the end, it's going to bring about even more hope. In fact, Paul was going to use almost that exact logic next week in the beginning of chapter 5. He's going to talk about hope some more, and we will look at it then. But Abraham's faith in God is a model for us because it shaped his view of the future. And I want you to think about how you view the future. Is it filled with anxiety, worry, fear? Or is it filled with hope? Secondly, Abraham's faith empowered him to be honest about the present. I I love this, okay? I I love these next couple verses. This is so... This is so raw and honest. I just love it. So against all hope, he believes. He still still has hope because he had a real faith in a real God. And so his faith had real substance. And it says, verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. And then get this. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So there's the word dead, okay? And the English translations translate it dead. But keep reading. And then he goes on, or when he considered the barrenness. But that word barren, so the word here for dead earlier when he's talking about how old he was is the word nekrao, and the word for barren is also a different form of the same word nekrao. Okay, so it, it's the, it, Paul wants to make a point here, and we kind of miss it in the English translation sometimes, but he's saying this whole situation was doubly dead. Like, Abraham, like, I'm, I'm as good as dead. I'm like 99. And Sarah, my wife, she's, her womb's as good as dead. And so here's the thing. It's, it's, so there's this double portion of death. And it says, notice the word, it says it twice. In the ESV, it's, it's, it's translated considered. It says he considered his own deadness. And he considered Sarah's deadness. And this idea of deadness, it's like, it's like, it's not just to, like you're just going, oh yeah, that's kind of bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on. It's, ooh, ooh, you're looking at it from all sides. You're considering it. You're taking it in. And you're going, that's, ooh, that is dead. Man, is that dead. My goodness, this is dead. Now, do you, do you see, but, and can I stop for just a second and I'll finish that thought, but do you understand the difference between this and what we're often told is an example of faith with all the word of faith nonsense. And I'm sorry, i got to point this out again because it's so evident. Where it's just like, don't speak death. Don't speak death. And I've, heard, I've heard people literally say, you know, I'm not, they're, <coughs> they're coughing all over the place. I'm not sick, I just got the symptoms. Because <laughs> huh? I don't want to speak death. Don't speak death. Don't speak death. That's the exact opposite of what this is saying. Abraham goes, oh man. <laughs> This thing, me, my wife, this situation, this is dead, man. He absolutely calls it for what it is. True faith in the promises of God, in the God who raises the dead, helps us to be honest about when it really is dead. And sometimes God wants to take us through a season where things are bad and they go from bad to worse and then they go from worse to worser. It's good English. Because he wants us to understand how dead this situation is and how despite all of that, we can still have hope when there is no hope because he is the God who raises the dead. Amen? And again, this is, you talk about the nature and character of God. 
Uh, if I can say it like, like this, not meaning to be irreverent, but this is just the way God rolls. This is the way he works. And we see it through time and time again throughout the people of God, throughout history, is that a situation's dead, but it's got to go from, from dead to debtor and debtor to the deadest. It can possibly be. Because he wants to show that over all the death, he has power and he has authority. In John chapter 11, you guys know the story of when he raised Lazarus. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick, so they sent to Jesus. Because they know that he's the answer. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then you have verse 5, which could just, should just, and 6, which should just jump off the page at us. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he ran off and went there as soon as he could. No. It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because death was coming. He was ill. They knew it was serious, but it wasn't dead enough yet. And he wanted it to be fully dead so that he could fully receive all the glory. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, in our life, God brings, brings about death. And I, I'm speaking kind of existentially here, metaphorically, as I think it applies. But he'll bring about death in different situations, relationally, circumstantially. And he wants it to get bad because he wants us to trust him anyway. This is how our faith is refined. This is how it is tested. And not just metaphorically, but brothers and sisters, can we, can we just talk straight this morning? You are going to die one day. I am going to die one day. Almost all of us live our life not wanting to look at that. We don't want to think about it. We just kind of just speak life, speak life, and we, and we amuse ourselves to death, and we uh, anesthetize ourselves to death with all the pleasures of this world. Whether it's, you know, the ones that we frown upon in the Christian world, like, you know, drug, sex, and alcohol, or whether it's the more stereotypes that are acceptable where we binge watch Netflix for six hours every night. But in the end, what we don't want to do is look at death full on in the face. But the substance of our faith is such that this is exactly what God calls us to do. Is that every single person in this room is going to die, and you know it, and I'm trying to be loving right now by God's grace to make you with eyes wide open look at it in the face and say, what are you going to do? Where is your hope? In whom or in what are you going to trust? And we know the answer. It's not a what, it's a who. His name is Jesus and he is the one that has conquered the grave. He is the one that is risen. 
And God will work in our lives over time, just as he did over the scope of Abraham's life over the course of roughly 25 years from the time he called him to leave his homeland and go to a place that he would show him. 25 years of waiting and longing and testing, and actually even longer than that because he was tested again after Isaac was born. Many decades of being tested and being willing, though, in faith to look death in the face and say, okay, that's dead. But my God is greater. My God is bigger. And he's faithful. You know, this is sometimes uh, when I meet with an individual or possibly a couple to do some just initial counseling of some sort. This is usually everybody kind of falls into one of two categories. Um, either they come in because they have come to the realization that the situation they're in is really dead. It's really dead. Or the other, cat, and, and they know it, and they just want to go forward. Or the other category is sometimes people come in and they know that it's kind of dead, but they don't realize just how dead, and then I have to help them show them, I have to help show them just how dead it actually is so that they'll stop trusting in themselves. And so that they'll stop thinking that they can, that they can fix it. Because this, 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 is, this is why. Like we, this is why we have to look at death full on, uh, is because God wants us to take our hands off of it. Because he will not share the glory with anyone else. But... Paul says here of Abraham, he did not weaken in his faith, even though he looked at the situation in all of its deadness and looked it full on for what it was. He did not weaken, and then look at the word waver in verse 20, and no unbelief made him, made him waver. And this, uh, this word for waver here um, in the Greek, it's literally the word for to judge or to divide. Um, it's the same idea that James pulls from uh, in the beginning of his epistle, um, it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed and driven by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, double-minded, unstable in all his ways. He's a divided, he's a divided man. Um, is that what unbelief and what lies and what circumstances and deadness wants us to do is it wants us to look at it and then it wants us to become divided. It wants us to not be whole. And again, the, the word of God is just so relevant and practically helpful. I, I just find that in my own life, when I'm not bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like that, it's because on some level I'm a divided man. I'm living in double-mindedness where I'm looking at the death and then I'm kind of looking at the promises. We look full on at death and we say, okay, this is what it is. And then we turn and we look at the face of God. We look at his nature and character and who he is and all the promises that he gives. And we're to be strengthened by his promises. And he goes on here. He says, no unbelief made him waver, didn't divide him concerning the promises of God. Well, it says, but he grew strong in his faith. 
Another, another marker of saving faith is, is that it, it grows. We grow strong in it. But we're strong in our faith, and I notice what, how, how Paul does this here. In growing strong in his faith, it's, it's not so much that the faith itself is something, but the faith is strong because it's looking to the one who is strong. And you've got to see this connection here. Again, it's, um, I, I don't always like to go to the original language as it, I don't wanna, because I don't want to make it seem like you have to know Greek in order to read the Bible, because you don't. But sometimes reading the original language versus the English is kind of like watching something in black and white or full color. Things just kind of pop out more, and there's points that he's wanting them to make. Here again... In verse 20, it says, he grew strong. That little phrase, grew, grew strong, is, is the Greek word, um, is the Greek word endumao, endumao, okay? Um, and then if you look at a little bit farther down, it says he grew strong as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, and was fully convinced that God was able. And again, it, in the English it doesn't show, but just that was able it's, it's, the same, it's this, another form of the same word, uh, dunitas, dunitas. It's, it's this idea, it's literally where we get the word dynamite. And so his faith in Dema'o like grew strong as he looked at the dunitas of God. As he looked at God's power, his faith gained power or gained strength. And the point here being is that our faith is always, is always empowered by contemplating God's power, not our own, or not the circumstance itself. Uh, this is where the secret lies. The secret lies in looking to the God who has all power. Your faith is only going to be as strong um, as, the, uh, as the object of your faith. And it says here, because Abraham did this, one more thought on this. Verse 21, it says, as he gave glory to God, and then it says, fully convinced, that little phrase there, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This, this word fully convinced here, it's literally the idea of being fully clothed or fully, or fully uh, paid, okay? So if something's partly paid, it's not fully paid. I have a mortgage on my house. My house is, I pay on it every month, but it's not paid, <laughs> I like if it was, but, um, but it's, I, I'm paying it, it's, but it's not fully paid. The idea here is that it's fully paid or fully clothed, um, that we're fully convinced. And this is how our faith grows to the place where we're fully clothed in faith and in trust in who, in who God is. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I don't know, I don't know why my boys do this. A lot of kids do, though, as I observe kids as I drop my boys off at Highland every week. But it can be just freezing cold outside. And Rowan and Finn will come out to the car with shorts on. And I go, oh, it's so cold. And I just look at them. And I go, they got these new things called pants. And, and they're shivered because they're not, they're not fully clothed. And when we find ourselves shivering in fear and in unbelief and in anxiety, what's the problem? We have to become fully clothed, fully convinced. 
How do we do that? We go and we put on the promises of God. We open up this book and we look at stories like the life of Abraham. And we look at how God provided and we trust in the same God. And we wait for him to follow through just like he did with others. Knowing that it will look different. We don't know exactly how, we don't know exactly what the how will look like. Exactly what he's going to do. But we know that he's faithful. And that he's never failed. Another marker of saving faith here isn't just that um, it shapes our view of the future and it allows us to be honest about the present, but it informs the way that we wait. It informs the way that we wait. And this little phrase here at the end of verse 20, again, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and then this little phrase, as he gave glory to God. Now, it's, it's literally just he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. And so it's a little bit ambiguous because on one hand, as he grew strong in his faith, that gave God glory. And that's true. But, but I think there's a little bit more to it here in that the idea of this act of giving glory to God is that what did he do? Well, as, as, he, as he was waiting, as he didn't know what to do, he gave glory to God. He worshiped. He sang. He, he thanked God, not just for what he had done, but for what he promised to do. And see, if we have a faith that is casting a shadow of hope into our future, folks, we don't always have to wait to praise God until he does the thing that we, we're waiting on him to do. He's worthy of our praise all the time, Amen. And so, yes, absolutely, there are times when we sing, and I, I, I know for me, and, and I'm sure for you as well too, there have been times where you've come in here in, on a Sunday morning, and you have sang with all your heart because of what has just happened the day before, or the week before, and the thing that you've been praying for, you saw him answer that prayer. But there's other times that we come in and we sing because we're waiting for him to do what only he can do, and he hasn't done it yet, and we're not sure what it's going to look like, and we're not sure exactly how it's going to work out, but we give him praise anyway. And as we do that, we grow strong in our faith. We become fully clothed in our faith, in the promises of God, not wavering, not double-minded, not like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro by all the wind. But worship is so important. What do we do while we wait? We worship. This is the testimony of God throughout the ages is that we, we, we sing, we praise, when the walls of Jericho wouldn't come down, you know, what were they going to do? They marched around it and they sang and they worshipped and they blew their trumpets. What did Paul and Silas do when they were in prison? They didn't know what to do. I don't think, they weren't doing it like some sort of exchange. Like, okay, God, well, we're going to sing now and then the walls are going to crumble and our chains are going to be set free. No, that's not what happened. They turned their eyes off of their circumstances, off of the deadness of everything that was in front of them, and they just chose to worship anyway. But in that worship, in that waiting, with worship and with expectation, God molds us and shapes us. And sometimes we sing and the chains fall off. Other times we sing and the chains stay. But we just keep singing. We just keep worshiping. One of my favorite stories, it's, it's in the Bible. It doesn't get enough press. I would love for this to become just as popular as 
the Exodus story or as David and Goliath, but it's the story of Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, um, there's a bad situation. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and some bad dudes are coming out around him. They are the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Mayanites, not to be confused with the Mennonites, but the Mayanites. And they come out against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men come to Jehoshaphat and they say, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and beyond the seas. And behold, they are in Hazanan Tamar. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord. And he assembled a fast throughout Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord and all the cities of Judah. And they came to seek the Lord. And so he calls everybody together for this big old prayer meeting to come together and to fast and pray and to seek God. What should we do when we don't know what to do? We come together and we seek God. We look to him. And then the, one of my favorite prayers in all the Bible, I've prayed this so many times uh, <laughs> because I've, I've felt like I've been in this situation so many times. He says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against, against this great horde that is coming out against us. And then he says this great line. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's awesome. <laughs> That's where we should live our life every day. I do not know what to do. I can't tell you how many times I've told the Lord that. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Don't know what else to do. And so they're all just standing there. Like the prayer ends, and if you can imagine this, it's all of Judah. Kids, it says, little children, wives, husbands. They're all standing there. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And as they're waiting, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon uh, this prophet named Jehaziel. I should not have looked up at those lights. I can't see now when I look. <laughs> I look down. Um, give me a second. Uh, and this, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel, this prophet, and he brings this promise of God. It says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but the Lord's. And he says, he goes on, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And again, what's, I, I don't have time to unpack it all, but what was interesting is Judah was in this situation because they'd been disobedient. It was their own fault. And yet God's mercy, willing to fight for them on their behalf. And so here's the great battle plan. What is God going to have them do? It says they rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And they went out and Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were the singers to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire as they went out before the army in battle. And they went out in front of the army singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine that. We're going to battle. Say, here's the plan. Tierra, Nate, Ashley, worship team. We're going to be all, you know, ready to go. But you guys are going out first. <laughs> Lead us in song. And out they go. And as they sing and as they worship, the Lord sends an ambush 
and he defeats their enemies. What do we do when we don't know what to do? We worship. We give glory to God. We praise him. We grow strong in our faith as we have our eyes fixed upon him. Now, Paul very much transitions here in the passage. He's talking not about Abraham, but like I said, his, his thought here is that we would not just think about Abraham's life, but our own life. Then he says, verse 22, that is why it was counted to him as righteousness. And again, he's already said that back in chapter 4, verse 3, and that's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. But he says again, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him, like, get this, isn't this wonderful? The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. When God had Moses write down, and most people believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, but when God had Moses write that down, it wasn't just for, for them. It's for us. It's for us. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe, listen, in him. Not just in the what. Not just in the how. But it is counted to us who believe in him. God Almighty, the same God that Abraham served. And what does he say about this God? Two things. Here's what he did. Him who, to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord. Who, speaking of Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. Is that who delivered him up because of sins? It wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't the soldiers. They were delivering him up because they were jealous. They were delivering him up because he was shifting the power structure of their little world, worldly, earthly kingdoms. They delivered him up because they thought that he was blaspheming, but really they just wanted to get rid of him. That's not who he's talking about here. He was delivered up for trespasses. Who did that? God did that. And he did it for us. And we're back again to the heart of the gospel. That God, knowing what needed to be done, gave his only son to die on the cross for our sins. He was delivered up for our trespasses. As Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, but with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That he was delivered up for our sins, for our transgressions, but he was also raised because of our justification. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're going to celebrate in a special way, although we want to celebrate it every single Sunday and every day of our lives, but that we're going to celebrate in a special way in a couple weeks on Easter Sunday, about the resurrection of Christ, that he was, if you remember Romans chapter 1, right in the intro, Paul said this, is that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. And it is the resurrection of Christ that is the proof that his sacrifice was acceptable. This is why we don't have to have any fear, folks. This is why we can have assurance. This is why we can have hope. This is why we can go forward, looking death full on in the face and not be afraid of it. Oh, that, that's dead. That's not just dead. That's really, really dead. But I'm going to believe God anyway. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen. 
That's why. And we must live lives that reflect the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I fear for us that we don't. I told you last week over in the theater, you know, the thing that's just been on my heart here is we've been going through this, and I just feel like in this season, and please hear me, I don't have really any master plan because that's not my job. My job is the same as yours, just to be obedient to what God is saying. But I'm telling you the thing that as I go to prayer, as I'm like the thing that just keeps coming back to me again and again and again is like the Lord's asking me, like, Eric, are you just going to play games? Are you just going to play games or are you going to send people? Are you just going to play church or are you going to go and make disciples? Are you just going to play church or are you going to go into dark places with the light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I'm just telling you, that like, I, I'm praying, and, I, and I, I'm not saying this in any sort of pride or arrogance, because I'm just as weak as anybody else. And I've got places in my heart that he's still working on, and he's still trying to get me to trust him, and I know that there's things that I hold on to, and that I'm, and the, and that I'm working through. But I'm praying that the Lord would make us uncomfortable. I'm praying that he would make us uncomfortable, and that he would cause us to get up and to go to leave the things that are familiar to us. And listen, that doesn't necessarily mean changing locality and going across the world to another country, but for some, I believe that it does. And if our lives are not willing to bend and to be shaped and to be molded to the greatness and the glory of the promises that he has given us in his word, then it might be that we don't have faith. Because faith is substance. It's something solid. And if it's really there, it casts a shadow of joyful expectation, hope, into our futures that we're willing to pursue. Worship team, you can come up. We're gonna close. <coughs> God had purposes in the deadness of Abraham and Sarah's situation. God had purposes, verse 24 and 25, in the deadness of the death of his son. God has purposes in the deadness that might be in your life in this season. But he is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And there's a quote here by, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, was one of the great preachers um, throughout the 20th century over in London, England, and uh, was said to preach during World War II, um, even at times as it was in a season of them, of the Germans dropping bombs on him, he would stand up and he would preach anyway. And at the end of his life, um, he died in 1981, uh, he couldn't talk very well anymore. But his daughter, I believe it was, gave him a piece of paper and he, with trembling hands, scribbled this note. I love this. <laughs> I pray that it would be, I 
pray that it would be the banner over every one of our lives. And he just wrote down this. He said, do not pray for healing. Do not try to hold me back from the glory. Is that not beautiful? Do not pray for healing. Do not try to hold me back from the glory. We got one life here to believe the promises of God. One day, our our faith will be lost in sight. We will see him as he is with new eyes. But if we are certain of this glory, brothers and sisters, then it changes everything about how we live in the here and now. It changes everything. And I want to be able to say at the end of my life, and again, we don't know. (laughs) Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Today is not promised to any of us. But I want to be able to say, as I know you do, at the end of my life, don't, don't pray for healing. Don't need to stick around here anymore. Don't try to hold me back from the glory. This is what we've been created for. So I pray that God would take our lives and that he'd pour them out until he comes back. Jesus, thank you for being so good to us. Oh, how we love you. Lord, these are are lofty things, God. These are big ideas. And Lord, we we acknowledge before, we want to be honest. We want to look at the deadness in the face. Lord, I know that like, even probably today or this, later this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning, the, the things of this world, the cares of this world, the bills that have to be paid and the kids that have to be dropped off and, and the things that we have to do and the car that will break down and the maintenance that needs done on the house, well, like all these things will, will, will come. And Lord, I know we have to do them and we have, to, we have to deal with them. But Father, take our lives and use them for your glory. Pour us out for your purposes. Make us willing to go. How can we respond any other way in light of all that you have done? In light of you sending your son, in light of you giving us these great and precious promises, how can we respond any other way? And Lord, we can't, we can't command ourselves, we can't, we can't manufacture something that isn't there, but God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and we look to you, and we wait for you to lead us in battle. Lord, the world is such a dark place, and there is so much hopelessness, but Father, you tell us and you command us to have this hope. And to go forward with it as a light to the nation. So Father, please, that's my prayer. I pray you do that. I don't know what it looks like. I don't think anybody here knows what it looks like. But we know that you're the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so Father, please move us. Please move us. We thank you so much that right now we get to stand up and we get to sing again. It's what we were created for, and we do it with joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.